What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Aura Ukumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. On today's show, we're bringing you a single story. It comes from a place where violence and the threat of it had paralyzed communities. A place where if a gangster demanded protection money, civilians either paid up or braved a bullet. It's a story of how the balance of fear in those communities has shifted, of how people can now walk around in relative safety, start businesses, socialize, and even stay out at night. But it's also a story of what it's taken to achieve that change. The dismantling of a country's democracy, as well as the undermining of the principles of justice on which democracy stands. In early July, I visited Las Cañas in El Salvador. It's a neighborhood northeast of the capital, San Salvador. And I had Don Pedro, who's a well-known local figure and administrator in the school, show me around. Sarah Burke is the Economist's bureau chief for Mexico, Central America and the Caribbean. We met in the school building. It's a house at the entrance to the neighborhood that's been converted to a school. It's decorated inside with murals, including one of Garfield the cat. It's very simple, but warm, just like Don Pedro. He's a grandfather and he seems very grandfatherly. He's smiley, he laughs a lot. This is a fairly disadvantaged area. It's a neighborhood of two parts. The lower part is much poorer, more rundown, more litter around. We walked down the slope from the school at the entrance to the neighborhood, through the upper area into the lower one. A simple walk, you might think, but it would have been impossible a year or so ago. Houses are sandwiched together on little pedestrian-only streets that run between two roads, like rungs that run between the edges of a ladder. The houses are modest, concrete buildings. Most are brightly painted. All have bars on their windows. (laughs) Don Pedro showed me a road that formed the border between the two parts. People couldn't cross because the two areas were controlled by rival gangs. The school had to open an annex in the lower part of the neighbourhood. Students who lived there couldn't cross to get to the main building in the upper part. All the children study in that one building now. Each section has its own football pitch. They're scrappy, grassy patches with goals that don't have nets. 
Now the teams from the two areas compete against each other. There's a tournament planned soon. Buenas. ¿Qué tal? ¿Cómo estamos? We met Miguel, an old man running a roadside kiosk. He sells sweets, tissues and other household items you might pop out to grab. He points to his kiosk walls. They're marked with bullet holes. He told me what many people are saying, not just in Las Cañas, but beyond. That the current president, Nayib Bukele, has changed everything. So, Sarah, you were just in El Salvador. Tell me about this shift and the president that's been credited for causing it. To understand what's happening in El Salvador, it's helpful to go back to understand where these gangs came from. So El Salvador had a civil war from 1980 to 1992 between a civil military dictatorship and a leftist guerrilla group. During this period, lots of Salvadorians went to the United States to get away from the violence. And they entered a country that didn't provide for them. And they were in cities like LA where gangs existed and targeted them. So they formed gangs in the United States. And in the 1990s, the United States started deporting back to El Salvador people who were not American citizens and had been convicted of crimes. So this is all happening at a time when El Salvador is just emerging from the end of the war. So I assume the country had a hard time handling this influx of people from these deportations. Yes. You have these young men being sent back to the country and they bring their gangs with them. So the gangs we now associate with El Salvador, which are the mainly two big ones, Barrio 18 and MS-13, started in the United States. And gang membership spread throughout El Salvador. It's a tiny country of 6.3 million today. But these gangs made money through extortion. And it's hard to overstate just how much they restricted what ordinary people could do. When I talked to Don Pedro, the man who showed me around Las Cañas, he would describe how hard it was to do really anything. To walk around, to leave the house, to buy necessities such as petrol or food. No one wanted to enter the neighborhood to sell things. So he's saying here... Those who did come into cell just came to the park, which is a little area at the top of the very entrance to the neighborhood, and everyone else would have to come up there to buy their milk. During this period, El Salvador's homicide rate was one of the highest in the world for a country technically at peace. I've covered conflict before in the Middle East, and the stories they were telling me just reminded me of what it is like when countries are in civil war. Now, successive presidential administrations have tried to make agreements with the gangs or crack down on them, and nothing seems to work long term. During all of this, a new, young politician, Nayib Bukele, runs for office in 2019. Many people might have heard of him because he was the president who made Bitcoin legal tender in El Salvador. That's the kind of politician he is. He's young, he was 37 when he won, he's now... 42 this month. He portrays himself as very cool, you know, jeans, baseball caps, other people he meets are in suits. And he curates this image of being an outsider who just gets stuff done. He doesn't come from one of the two parties that controlled the country since the end of the civil war. And he comes and says he's going to address this gang problem once and for all. His initial strategy is similar to past administrations. He makes a pact with the gangs to cut down on violence. He denies this, but it's been well reported. And then there was one pivotal weekend, March the 24th to 27th, 2022, 
when this pact appears to have fallen apart. An increased army presence on the streets in El Salvador, an immediate reaction to a bloody weekend. The National Civil Police reporting 14 people murdered on Friday and 62 the following day, making Saturday one of the... More than 87 people were killed in just a few days. On March the 26th, it was the highest daily homicide rate in several years. So in response, Bukele, who controls the assembly, which is the legislative body and has a supermajority, calls for the legislature to pass a state of exception so he can crack down and deal with the violence, which it does. Tell me more about this state of exception. What did Bukele mean by that? So it's a legal state that suspends protections in the constitution, the right to free assembly, the right to a defence lawyer, and the three-day limit on being detained without charge. And so Bukele uses the suspension of these articles and others in the constitution to go out and arrest people on a massive scale. A few weeks into the state of emergency, Bukele boasted about the arrests in a speech to new soldiers at the military academy. So Bukele is standing in a field with a soldier around him, flags behind him. And he's saying about how they treat the prisoners, that they're sleeping on the floor and that they have two meals. And he's saying if they are difficult, he's going to reduce it to no meals. Some estimate that he had 19,000 people arrested in one month. The government now says it's detained 71,000 people since March 2022. That's in a country of 6.3 million in total. They've done this in a very arbitrary and very brutal fashion. So, Ore, I'm going to show you something. It's the TikTok account of the Vice Minister of Justice from March 2022. This is a couple of days after the state of exception was put into place. And that really gives you an idea of the sort of things the government itself is saying about this. Okay, so I can see what looks like a prison. There's a lot of men, they're only in shorts, and they're all being forced to sit very close to each other. So they're all sat kind of in brace position, kind of like you would on a plane, with the head on the back of the person in front of them, with their hands handcuffed behind their heads. And they're being shouted at by policemen. And there's got to be at least a thousand odd people in this prison courtyard. They're all sweating, they're breathing really hard. You can tell that they're in distress. It's a pretty disturbing scene, even the way they're being dragged by the policemen into the middle of the courtyard. What I find so disturbing about it is the sort of Hollywood cinematic properties, you know, the booming music and all the rest of it. And let me just translate a bit of what he's saying. He's saying, we're going to show the criminals that anything they do to the people, the state can do to them and make them pay for it. We're going to capture you. And when you come here, you're going to live in terrible conditions. The government has kept and kept posting videos, photos, TikTok videos. The whole point of the messaging is to advertise how brutal and how bad these prisons are and the treatment will be of anyone who's captured. A minister we talked to said that the prisoners are only going to get 1,800 calories per day, 
whereas the most inmates get 2,100. So not a single person has been convicted or declared innocent. There's just this legal limbo of holding people, pushing back trials. Mostly they've been charged with unlawful association and a smaller number for belonging to a terrorist group. Now that language is worth talking about. Before Bukele, gang activity was defined as terrorism. And the security minister, when I spoke to him during my time in El Salvador, very much described this as the government's war on gangs and as rounding up terrorists. We are fighting against this terrorist under. The Legislative Assembly under Bukele has changed the laws. So it used to be that you needed to charge people within 72 hours of arrest, and now it's 15 days. There used to be a cap on the amount of time someone could be in prison for pre-trial detention of two years for a serious crime. Now it's indefinite. And Bukele has also lengthened the prison sentences for people who are convicted. Just to make sure I'm understanding this correctly, that's 71,000 people detained, not one yet convicted, and some people have been in there for more than a year. And no one declared innocent either? Exactly. I mean, we double-checked this information with human rights advocates, lawyers, because it's so incredible. 6,000-odd people have been released on bail or because they're sick or because they're children. And the government numbers are that 90 people have died in custody. NGOs say it's more than 150 people. And that many showed signs of torture and mistreatment. The people most affected by this are the poor. The police raids are mainly in the poor neighbourhoods where gangs had more of a stranglehold. So they're looking for basically young men who seem dodgy to them. That might mean that they just have a tattoo. The justification for arrest might be things like, well, there's an anonymous online post about you or someone called about you. And as much as we've talked about how hard life was under the gangs, it's worth thinking for a minute about what this actually means for the families who've had somebody detained or people who might be fearful of being detained themselves. I went up to nearby one of the prisons, Izalco, which is about 70 kilometres west of the capital. So I walked up the road leading to that prison and along it are stalls, sort of makeshift wooden pop-ups. These are run mainly by the families of people who are detained, and they're sitting alongside the road. All these stalls have popped up in the last year or so. And the people are selling necessities that families can buy to send to prisoners, so things like boxer shorts, soap, cereal. I was stood there for a little over an hour, and I probably saw half a dozen trucks packed full of people being taken up to the prison. And I also saw a couple of ambulances coming down. When that happened, many of the people went silent, pointed. Some, you had tears rolling down their faces. Many of those at the stalls are relatives of people who are detained, and they're sat there hoping just to catch a glimpse of their loved one. Part of the government's strategy to pay for all this, because it's expensive, obviously, is making families provide the essentials. So government suggests families send $150 worth of supplies every two weeks. Prisoners seldom come from middle-class families, and over half the population earns less than $328 a month. So that's really a stretch. I spoke to one of the women. She asked me not to use her real name. So her son and his partner were both taken in April 2022. So that's 15 months ago. A mi hijo me lo agarraron en Aguachapán con la esposa. Con la esposa de él. 
Her son was taken on his way home from work, and he was in this nearby prison until the end of May, when he was moved to a different one. She's seen him maybe eight times since his arrest, usually as he's being trafficked up or down, taken to a hearing or some other destination she doesn't know. But she says when she spotted him, he's appeared malnourished and with injuries that suggested he'd been beaten when he was arrested, for example, and afterwards. She's now working at this stall to earn money to send things to him. She voted for Bukele back in 2019. She told me that she thought he would change the country for the better. During the pandemic, he did give out money and goods to families who were struggling, and that was very popular. She said lots of people are applauding the president for this because now they don't have to deal with the gangs. But for her, instead of being afraid of the gangs, now she's afraid of the police. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist. Here's the truth about AI. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. So Sarah, we've just heard you speak with one mother whose son has been detained about the impact that these policies are having on the lives of families. It sounds like it's really a huge cost for them to bear. Yes, it truly is. Even if someone is guilty, this isn't how the justice system is meant to work. You'd have an investigation, you'd have a probable cause to arrest someone that you'd tell them, and you would have a clear timeline for a trial and access to a lawyer. And that's just not happening consistently at all. Now, the government says people will eventually have trials. The security minister told us, hopefully within the next 24 months. But so far, they've just had pre-trial hearings and everything is pushed back another six months, another six months. So I also travelled to a nearby port town called Akahutla. There's a bit of a town that's almost touristy. There are restaurants on the cliff overlooking the waves crashing against it. And from there, I walked into a neighbourhood that, again, I wouldn't have been able to enter in the past because it was controlled by a different gang from the area where the port and restaurant is. And there I talked to a woman. She was too scared to give her name. And her brother had been detained in April 2022. She's been unable to contact him or get any information about him since then. 
And she says that in many ways, yeah, sure, Bukele has improved daily life in El Salvador. But at the same time, she spends her nights praying that her brother is going to survive and come home. But part of her thinks he's just going to be coming home in a funeral car. You can hear just how wearied she sounds by her voice alone. Sarah, what should we make of all this? It sounds like a dire situation, but at the same time, these people who have been affected by these policies seem to still agree that Bukele has done something beneficial. It's a really challenging situation. We have to admit, as all these people do, that the crackdown has helped many, many people. It's a hugely popular policy. So the crackdown has halved the murder rate. El Salvador had eight murders per 100,000 people in 2022, which is really low. Emigration is going down. The government will say this means people can live a life in El Salvador. Extortion has also clearly dropped, and many people said they've opened small businesses because now they can. Even El Faro, which is a highly respected news outlet critical of Bukele, it said that the gangs have basically been broken up. So overall, the quality of life has improved if, and this is a very big if, you don't have a relative who's been detained. So if some people are okay with the extent of these lockups, then what does that mean for El Salvador's democracy? So Bukele has only been able to crack down as hard as this because he's basically eroded democracy in El Salvador. A senior official admitted as much to me that controlling all the arms of the state is a precondition for this policy's success. And the Legislative Assembly is part of that. In 2020, before Bukele won a majority, which happened the year later, he sent soldiers into the Congress with him to bully lawmakers into supporting his security budget. In this rally, he's saying that if those shameless people, and here he's referring to the lawmakers, don't approve his security plan, then he's going to summon people to protest here again. And he says that they'll ask for the wisdom of God, but they'll say to God, well, you asked me to be patient, but these lawmakers just don't want to work for the people. In 2021, he legitimately won a supermajority in the parliament which means anything he wants to do is basically voted through by his party. Bukele is using all of this to run for re-election in February next year. This is contrary to the understanding of the Constitution that the president can't run for two terms in succession. He has to leave, sit one out, and then come back again. But he's got the Constitutional Court to say that it's okay to do this by stepping down six months before he would take office, and then he can obviously come back again. Okay, Sarah, let's look a bit more broadly about what this means for the rest of the region. If these policies are kind of working, could some other leaders be taking a leaf from Bukele's playbook? For sure. And that's the danger. There are lots of countries in the region that have their own issues with gangs. And we're starting to see some people who are trying to copy Bukele. I mean, people in the region refer to this as the Bukele model. Now, no one's fully adopted it yet. But last November, Honduras's president declared a state of emergency. This allows the police there to jail suspects without charge, though there are more limitations and far few people have been jailed. In Guatemala, a frontrunner in the presidential race said she would build two mega prisons and a minor candidate copied Bukele's beard and backwards baseball cap. Ecuador has a snap presidential election coming up on August the 20th, and one candidate has made a name for himself by promising to kill drug dealers and using Bukele-like stunts. 
So he tours the country in a helicopter to the soundtrack of Top Gun. El Salvador is also being proactive about spreading its model. It's announced it would open an office in Haiti to advise the government there on how to deal with its gang problem. Okay, so there's some appetite for copying this peculiar model, despite its obvious drawbacks. But Sarah, in the long run, is the impact of this crackdown actually going to last in El Salvador? That's the million-dollar question. We need to be very clear that the path El Salvador is going down, it's not a good one. And Bukele is using this policy to get himself re-elected. What we do know in general is that incarceration is good for gangs. They tend to control the prisons, they negotiate better treatment from guards, and they use it to recruit new members. We also know that these sorts of iron fist policies in Latin America are not new. Generally, violence goes down in the short term and then, well, it ticks back up. But no country, including El Salvador, has cracked down to this degree on the gangs in the past. They have locked up so many people and are willing to hold them for, well, seems maybe almost indefinitely. So it might work in the near term, but fundamentally this isn't dealing with the problem with the root causes. And Don Pedro made this point to me when we were talking back at the school in Las Cañas. La pregunta sería, ¿va a durar esto? Sí, esa, esa es la, la pregunta. pregunta. Sí. Esa es la pregunta. He told me that none of the root causes are being addressed. You can still see that there are a lack of opportunities for young people and a lot of poverty and hardship. He and other people really feel that it's a tenuous, fragile situation. And this is helping Bukele. The implicit promise, or threat, of his re-election campaign is that if he loses, the gangs will come back. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us and for your incredibly thorough reporting. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin. And our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with extra help this week from Johnny Allen. Our senior producers are Sam Westron and Rory Galloway. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Alizé Jean-Baptiste, Kevin Kainers, Barclay Bram and Sarah Larniuk, with extra production help this week from Elna Schutz, Maggie Kadifa and Victor Peña. We'll all see you back here on Monday. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in Extraordinary. Data is the lifeblood of business and society. Want to get better with it? Register now for Economist Education's new two-week course, Data Storytelling and Visualisation, 
starting on July 31st. Designed by The Economist journalists, you'll learn how to create compelling infographics, reveal hidden insights, and to persuade others. And as an Economist podcast listener, enjoy 15% off with the code DATA. So sign up now at economist.com slash datacourse.